Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I want to take a moment and um, publicly thank my wife and my children for all of the sacrifices that they make for me. to pursue the work that God has allowed me to do. I, I, I could not do it. I would not do it apart from their willingness to make sacrifices. So thank you. I've had multiple moments in my life where I was genuinely afraid. One of those occasions was on a short-term mission trip to Haiti. Myself, my two brothers, and Rob Connolly. Uh, we had all been in Haiti for Northeast Haiti for a few days, and we were walking around town, and as we walked around, we saw a tire on fire in the middle of the road, and, and burning tires are not uncommon in Haiti, uh, so we weren't very surprised, but, but as we got closer to this tire in the middle of the road, we, we realized that there were, it was well arranged, and, and then there was other large boulders kind of arranged in the road with it, and so as we came up to it, we realized this is a barricade of some sort. And so as we walked up to it, a truck came down the road, and, and it stopped right in front of this barricade. And almost as immediately as it had stopped, it went into reverse and went backwards as fast as it could, as if it was fleeing something that was behind us. And so naturally, uh, we turned around to see what was behind us. And this is one of those moments that will forever be etched in my mind, a photo in my mind that I will really never forget uh, what it looked like and what I felt. I was afraid. It was a mob. It was not a, a happy mob, nor was it a small mob. It was a large, angry mob full of people with machetes and rocks. And they were pouring out from behind this building. And they were coming directly towards us and the truck that was at least 100 feet away from us at this point. So we were kind of in the center of this whole thing. And so uh, if you're ever in this situation, you should run. <laughs> and so we did. We ran. We ran down an alleyway, down a little dirt path to a house. Uh, and the people of that house saw that we were very concerned, and very kindly they put us into the house with all of the children and teenage girls. And, um, and, 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 and so we went into this house, and then it happened. Shooting, lots of shooting, different types of guns, all kinds of commotion. And just so you know, uh, a hut constructed of reclaimed uh, wood and tin does not instill confidence in the middle of a shootout. And so there we are, me, my two brothers, and Rob Connolly, huddled on the floor, afraid. And so if you're ever in that situation, you should pray. And so we prayed, loud. And we prayed, and, and after about five minutes, things kind of calmed down, and and I looked up and I noticed that no one else was huddled under the table with us. <laughs> In fact, they seemed fairly amused that we were huddled under the table. 
And so he came to find out that this exact scenario had been playing out over and over again for a couple of months. All the shooting was simply the police shooting into the air to scare people away. No one was hurt. And for all intents and purposes, you could call this a false alarm. There was really nothing to be afraid of. But I was scared nonetheless in the middle of that. And as we look into our passage this morning, we're going to see a man that is afraid. And for good reason. That man is the Apostle Paul. Yes, Paul was scared. Many times we don't think of Paul that way. We don't think of him as as someone who would be afraid in hard situations because he faced so many of them. But he tells his friends in Corinth this much when he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He's explaining to them his emotional state that he came to them in. He, he was afraid. So what does Paul have to be afraid of? Why is he so scared? Well, let's take a look back and kind of review where we've come from. Just a year earlier, Paul and his closest friend Barnabas had split up. They had parted ways. They had had a sharp disagreement, and Paul went his way with Silas. And so as Silas and Paul are going through Asia, they are forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. And this is the exact thing Paul intended to do. Then the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go into Bithynia. They're feeling a bit aimless, and Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia asking them to come and help. So concluding that God is calling them to Macedonia, they go. Their first stop is in Philippi, where they're stripped and beaten and jailed. Then they're forced out of town. From there, they go to Thessalonica. And before a mob takes hold of them, they flee by night. Then they go to Berea. The mob from Thessalonica follows them. And then Paul leaves by himself. He goes as far as Athens. He flees as far as Athens. And when he gets there, he sends message back to Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. And then Paul is essentially he's laughed out of Athens for preaching the thing that is most dear to him. Christ and the resurrection. And all this happened over about a year's time. And so understandably, Paul is pretty low when he comes into Corinth. We see in Acts 18, verses 1 through 4, that after this, Paul leaves Athens, as we just talked about, and he goes into Corinth. And after, or and he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So our passage picks up this morning as Paul comes into Corinth. And the first thing that Luke tells us about is Paul's time, about time, Paul's time in Corinth is that he finds a man named Aquila. So one of the first things we might wonder about Aquila and his wife Priscilla is whether or not they were followers of Christ. This is a a logical question. So are they Christians? And I'm inclined to say yes, and, and I'll tell you a few reasons. So these two had just been ejected from Rome because of their ethnicity. 
And so the odds of being persecuted while hanging out with Paul are, are pretty high. Most of the people that hang out with Paul get in trouble. And they would have known that. And so for them, for them to have time and spend time with Paul would, would be pretty risky. And so this looks like a, a, a Christian activity to align with Paul, to spend time with Paul. Furthermore, Paul lives with them. Again, this would be pretty risky for them to have Paul come and live in their house with them. It would also be uncommon for an unconverted Jew to have uh, Paul living in their house if they did not believe in Christ. Again, they do business together. And again, again, it seems that unconverted Jews who had just been run out of Rome, they would not risk their, their stability or their livelihood by doing business with Paul. In addition, the idea that they're Christians is plausible because there was a, a Christian witness in Rome already. And it's possible, if you remember from Acts chapter 2, that uh, Peter's preaching, and he's preaching to people from Rome and Pontius. So it's possible that these two could have been in Jerusalem when Peter's preaching his first sermon. So either way, they had access to the message and they seem to be followers of Christ. Some translations say that, that Paul found Aquila. Others say that they just simply met. So it's not clear if Paul sought out Aquila or if they just met by chance. If they were Christians, Paul seeking them out would make sense. Uh, he, he would want some fellowship and he would, have, he would have sought them out. Either way, Paul finds Aquila and Priscilla. And they are exactly what Paul needs at that time in his life. He finds deep friendship with them, he finds a place to live, and he finds work to do. In the spring of 2013, my, my wife, myself, and our four children moved, don't worry, it's not a story about a riot or a mob. Uh, my family and I, we moved into a small Dominican neighborhood. Uh, we were transitioning from working in Haiti to working with Haitians living in Dominican Republic. We had no furniture, no car, we didn't speak uh, Spanish, we had no English-speaking friends, we didn't know much about the culture, and we kind of just found ourselves dropped into this world that we really knew nothing about and were ill-equipped to do anything with. I mean, we didn't have a car. I mean, what were we thinking? It was a bit intimidating. And so after a few days of being there, I noticed some children playing in a neighbor's house across the way. There was two black children, some Dominican children, and a little white kid with really, really white blonde hair. And so it's not uncommon to see white people in our city, so I didn't think too much of it. I thought maybe it's a Canadian or somebody vacationing there or whatever. And so the next day, as I was getting water at a nearby store, we have to buy our drinking water, and so I was there buying some, and I, and I saw this tall, really broad-shouldered white man with some children kind of milling about him. I introduced myself, and I, and I learned that he is the father of the blonde-haired boy and the two black children who I saw playing in the yard. And so we chatted for a few minutes, kind of like sniffing each other out as missionaries. Kinda, missionaries kind of do that when they meet each other, whenever, whatever country they're in, they kind of like want to figure out, like, who are you and what are you doing here? So we kind of did that thing. And um, so th the next day, Steph and I walked over to their house, um, and they only lived like a stone's throw from us. Like I could yell to their house. And we began to talk with them. They, they invited us in. We sat and talked. And as we did so, it became clear that Pat and Jenny and Steph and I, we had a lot in common. 
They had four children. We had four children. They were all the same ages. Uh, one of our, uh, two of our children were actually born on the exact same day. Um, they were from Tennessee. He loves college basketball. It was obvious they love God. They love his word. And they were very thoughtful about how to minister to the poor. And so it was really, for us, like, wow, this is, like, this is really cool. Like, we always said, these, these folks are North Wake-type folks. Like, they would have, if they were in Wake Forest, they would be here. They'd be hanging out with us. And so over the next two years, our families would become family together. We worshiped together. We studied together. We read the Bible together. We prayed together. We had dinners together. We did birthday parties together. We did life together in a way that made life and ministry more joyful and more doable. The miles were exactly what we needed. And we were exactly what they needed, I hope. And so God has people, and he wants those people to be together. And the miles have been one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given to our family. He knew exactly what we needed. And we would not be where we are in ministry today without them. I guarantee that. And I pray that they would say the same about us. So I can, I can identify with Paul's experience in Corinth. I've, I've received the same type of gift in my life that he received in Priscilla and Aquila. And so, so do you have a Priscilla and Aquila in your life? Has God brought to you near and dear Christian friends that, that soothe your weary heart when you're weary and, and you need a friend in your time of need when you're fearful, broken, has God brought you those type of friends? Have you sought those type of friends out? Sometimes you have to go find those friendships. So if you're feeling weak in your pursuit of God and his mission, ask God to send you brothers and sisters to bolster your faith, to build you up and encourage you. And ask God to give you grace to seek out those friendships. So are you being a Priscilla and an Aquila for someone who needs you? Would Paul find a place on your couch? Would he find a job at your business? Would you take that kind of risk? Would you take the risk that Priscilla and Aquila take to, to have Paul living in their house? To have Paul working alongside of them? I bet their Jewish customers were not so excited about their new employee, the Apostle Paul. So if you do things like that, you might lose accounts. Your family might advise against that. But we see Priscilla and Aquila loving Paul, expressing what we believe to be faith in Christ by drawing Paul in, having Paul in their lives. So as is Paul's pattern, he reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the one that God promised would come. So, so Paul goes back to doing what he always does. He's working alongside Priscilla and Aquila, but then every Sabbath he's going into the synagogue. He's speaking, he's teaching, he's reasoning. And it seems that Paul's working to provide for himself by making tents, and then he's using the synagogue as a platform for proclaiming Christ. In Acts 18, 5 and 6, we see this. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the, Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, 
your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Upon first read, it kind of seems like Silas and Timothy come into town and, and Paul's just occupied with the word. He's like too busy for them. Kind of reads that way in the, e, uh, in the ESV. But if we look at the NIV, it reads like this. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. And so that's probably a better reading. There's multiple translations that read like that. So what we're seeing is that, that after Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia to Corinth, they hook up with Paul. So after they come, Paul is able to devote himself completely to his ministry of the word. And this is due to a couple of specific encouragements that they bring. First, they bring good news about what is happening in Thessalonica. You see, Paul did not have Facebook. So if he wanted to see how his friends are doing, he had to talk to them in person or send them a letter or receive news of them from other people. So the last that he knew things in Thessalonica were pretty bad. When he left, there were riots and people being roughed up by mobs and all kinds of terrible things. So he didn't know things were going so well. So he's waiting for a status update. Uh, they bring him one, and he's encouraged by this news, by all that's happening in Thessalonica. And Paul actually writes to them in response to this news while he's in Corinth. He writes to the Thessalonians about all that he's heard. And so we see in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us, Timothy's come to Corinth, he's come to us from you in Thessalonica, and he's brought, he's brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may seek your face face-to-face, -face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. And so we see Paul is pretty pumped up about this. Like, like even in reading that, that letter that he's writing to them, you can see, man, he's relieved. In all the affliction that he's facing, he's encouraged because what he suffered in Thessalonica, the fear, being run out of town, people being roughed up, God's using that. People are coming to faith. The church is growing up. And so he's encouraged by that. In addition, Silas and Timothy brought money. We see in 2 Corinthians 11, 9, it says, And when I was with you, so he's writing to the Corinthians. He's telling them about when he was there. He says, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. So he doesn't ask the Corinthians. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, Silas and Timothy, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul was able to insulate himself from the thinking in Corinth that he was just there to make a buck by working and also by being provided for by people from another place, i.e. Philippi. And so we see in Philippians 4, 15, 14 and 15, yet it was, he's, he's writing to the Philippians to thank them for the way that they encouraged him. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, so he's leaving Macedonia, he's going 
into Athens, into Corinth. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So we see the Philippians are giving to Paul. So we should conclude that this gift, this money, this encouragement that comes to Paul by Silas and Timothy is coming from the Philippian church. And it put him in a position to where no one could say in Corinth that Paul was there preaching to get paid. And this massive encouragement comes to Paul in such a way that he's able to commit fully to doing the work of ministry, his, his ministry of proclamation. So Paul's someone who's dependent on the church. He's interdependent on the church. Not like someone taking from the church but not giving but he's someone who's giving, 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 giving. And the church is giving, 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 giving. And they have this interdependency on one another. And this is a very, very appropriate type of relationship that the church has with uh, its leaders. And so when you give on Sunday mornings, one thing that happens is, you know, you, you share what God has shared with you in the little offering plate and it goes around. Well, that, that ends up encouraging and, and helping and supporting our pastoral staff and missionaries. And that allows them to do this thing that Paul is entering into, to devote themselves more fully to teaching and preaching. Because they're not creating a widget. They're not making something they can sell. And so in many ways, they're very, very dependent on us to encourage them in the work that they do and help them to, to live and feed their families. And it's encouraging. We see that some, some wind is put in Paul's sails. And so Paul has some good news about the churches in Macedonia. He has a little money in his pocket, and his two dear friends in ministry are by his side. So Paul is, is, is ready to get back to it. So Paul became fully occupied with testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, and as usual, he receives opposition. They revile and mock him for the things he's saying. His response is, is pretty simple, but there's some complexities to it. And so as they mock him, he removes his outer garment and he shakes it out. And in doing that, all the people there would know that he's pointing back to Nehemiah chapter 5 and that he's loosing himself from responsibility for them. And what he says is reflective of, of that fact. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. We see Paul feels a personal responsibility for these 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 kinsmen of his, these, these brothers, these sisters, ethnically. He feels a responsibility for them and their souls. And it's not lightly that he relinquishes responsibility of them. His insistence that he is innocent of their blood should push on us a little bit. And here's why. His innocence, or the fact that he's saying he's innocent, is rooted in the fact that he spent weeks maybe months telling these folks of Christ. So on the other hand, would he not be innocent of their blood if he had never told them? So if he's innocent because he told them, should we conclude that he would not be innocent if he never told them? I think there's something to that. So Paul believes and teaches that those who live and die without faith in Christ will spend eternity under the wrath of God. Hell. Not simply just separated from God for eternity, but under the active wrath of God for all eternity. That's what he believes and that's what he teaches. Those who are never told of the grace of God and Christ to save sinful men and women and children 
they will never believe if they are never told. And they will never be reconciled to God if they've never heard the message of reconciliation. And they will never experience his love as they ought to experience. That's what Paul believes. So here's the motivational truth behind what Paul says. Every person in Corinth will either bow bow before God in humble love and worship, or they will burn under God's wrath, his just and awful wrath for eternity, paying the due penalty for their sins against God. That's what Paul believes. And so our friends and our neighbors and our families and our children will either bow down or they will burn up. That's the reality. That's a terrible reality that we have to to face and believe. And, And so we have a responsibility for them. We hold the good news that God loves to save sinners. And he sent Christ to do that thing, to accomplish that saving of sinners. So are you holding that in or are you holding that out? Because if you're here today, it's most likely that you hold that to be true. But my question is, are you holding it like this or are you holding it like this as something to be shared? So who has God drifted your way so that they could hear? And will you care enough about them to tell them hard and good news? Will you love them in the way that Paul loves the people that God has put in his life? By speaking very clearly to them as he ought. Going through open doors that God throws open for him. So Paul tells the Jews of Corinth that he will no longer come to them in their place. He's no longer coming to the synagogue He will no longer focus his efforts in Corinth on the Jews. Rather, he will pursue the Gentiles or non-Jews. Acts 18 says this, 7 through 8. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire family. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so Paul does exactly what he said he was going to do. He leaves the synagogue, and he goes to the house of Titius Justice, who's right next door. And we're told that Titius Justice is a worshiper of God. And so this most likely means that he's a Greek who had stopped worshiping all the many, many gods that most of the Greeks worship, and he had begun to direct his worship towards the one true God. And it may be that he is one of these Greeks mentioned in verse 4 that Paul was ministering to in the synagogue that he had been reasoning with. And this would follow seeing that Paul goes directly to his house. And so that indicates some sort of relationship and some sort of commitment to Paul's teaching on the part of Titius Justice. So Paul's getting nowhere with the Jews, so he turns his focus. And in so doing, he puts the Jews in a position to where they have to put up or shut up. He puts it on them. And and something really, really amazing happens. The ruler of the synagogue and his whole family believe in Christ. That's pretty amazing. So imagine with me this morning. I'm the Apostle Paul. I know that's hard to imagine. I'm the Apostle Paul, and you are kind of this mixed group of Jews and Greeks, and we're in the synagogue here. 
And I'm telling you that Jesus is the promised one. And you begin to yell at me and oppose me and, and, and say all kinds of things to me. And so I start taking my clothes off and shaking them out. And so as I'm doing that, everything kind of quiets down a little bit. And I say, okay, have it your way. If you want to pay the penalty for your own sins, that's on you. I've told you the truth, and I am free from responsibility for you all. And now I'm going to a people who have not heard. They haven't heard the things that you've heard. Then I leave, and I go next door to the house over here, large house that's, that's big enough for some people to meet in. And, and so no sooner than I've made my way through the door over here, Pastor Larry, he always sits over here, Larry and his family, they stand up and they walk out following me. This is essentially what has just happened. This is fairly amazing. That in the midst of all of this, the guy who's responsible for this synagogue, he leaves it. He leaves his family, he leaves his friends, he leaves his community and goes after Christ. So this would surely incite jealousy from the Jews. And this seems to be kind of a technique that Paul uses to get their attention. And this technique is useful in, in drawing Crispus in. Crispus is put in a situation where he has to make a decision. Is he for Christ or is he against him? And so he chooses to walk with Christ, he and his whole family. So this would be similar to uh, an imam in a local mosque being converted to Christianity and his whole family with him. It's pretty amazing, pretty unlikely. And so Paul's focus on the Gentiles, it, it bears instant fruit. And we read in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 that Paul baptizes Crispus and a guy named Gaius, who is most likely Titius Justice. So he baptizes these two guys in our passage. And because of the hospitality of Titius Justice, the church has a place to meet and to gather. And people are hearing the word from Paul and people are believing and they're being baptized. And so some really super exciting things are happening in Corinth. And likewise, some super exciting things are happening in Wake Forest. I met a man in Wake Forest this week. He and I talked for about 30 minutes about art and uh, the environment and, and life. And, and I'm going to follow up with him. And I'm going to tell him about how Jesus is the king of art and he's the king of the environment, and he's the king of life. And I'm going to do my best to put him in a situation to where he has to choose based on the truth of the gospel. Because that is the most kind and loving thing that I can do for that man. To pursue him and to lovingly confront him with the gospel out of love and care for his soul. That's not natural to me. I don't want to do that many, many times. But what Christ has done compels me to do that because people did that for me. People pursued me and confronted me and, and held me down in some ways and said, oh, no, no, no. You don't get to check other. You have to check yes or no. And we all do that. And so that's, that's my hope is that I would get to spend time with this man. Um, he and I would not be natural friends. Uh, I, I, you know, if I was going to go through and select people that are like me. He's not a whole lot like me. But God has opened a door from my life into his life, and, and I want to faithfully walk through that 
explaining very clearly, as I ought, uh, what is this mystery that we have in Christ? And so I pray that God would do that. That's exciting. I'm glad that I get to be a part of that. I want to be used by God as an instrument to draw people to himself. And, and that's what God's calling us to do, to be instruments used in drawing people to Christ. In Acts 18, 9 to 11, we see this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So it seems strange that God would extend this vision to Paul just as things are going so well. We would have expected in verse 1 when Paul's kind of at his lowest point. When he comes in fearful and discouraged. But if we think back, remember, when things go well for the kingdom of God, i.e. people come to Christ and there's movement happening and the world's being turned upside down. That's when Paul ends up with beatings and being imprisoned and being run out of town. When nothing's happening, things are okay for Paul. Paul can hang around. But when, when people are saved and especially Jews being saved. That's when the beatings come for Paul. That's when he's in prison. That's when he's run out of town. And so this vision is right on time. God knows exactly what Paul needs. And so in verse 9, when Luke says, the Lord says, he means the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus comes to Paul in yet another vision. And he speaks directly to how Paul is feeling. He knows what Paul needs to hear. And so the, the Lord, he acknowledges Paul's concerns and, and he quells them with the greatest possible remedy, his very own presence. I am with you. I am with you, he says. So if, if God is with Paul, who can be against Paul? And then the, the Lord affirms what Paul has already been doing. And he insists that he keep on speaking. So he sees what Paul's done already, speaking, persuading, pursuing, reasoning, and says, go on doing that. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Jesus then explains that no one will come, no harm will come to him. And God makes this specific promise that he intends to keep, as we'll see in just a moment. And then the Lord Jesus explained exactly why Paul should go on speaking. And here's the center of this, this whole passage, and really uh, the center of this vision. It says, Jesus says, I have many in this city who are my people. And so Jesus is saying to Paul, I died to make specific people in Corinth mine. Go on speaking so they can come to me by faith in our message. The fact that Jesus died to save specific sinners is the single greatest motivation in sharing the good news that I can think of. Because I can be sure that many will come to faith because Jesus died as a ransom for many. I don't have to be fearful of the results. I should simply be faithful to share the message. Christ died to save sinners. Sinners will be saved by Christ. By what Christ has done. Their faith in that through hearing that message. Sinners will be saved. I have to say, I'm, I'm so thankful that Luke chose to include exactly what was said to Paul. 
and it's something that I need to hear. So something I've been praying this week as, I, as I've studied this passage, I've, I've been praying, God, do you have people in Wake Forest? Specifically, God, do you have people in Wake Forest? And, and here's the answer I'm getting. Yes. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. And so I want to ask you if you would be willing to pray that this week. Take some time and, and, and just ask God, do you have people in Wake Forest? Ask God, who are the people he is after? Ask him to help you find them, to give you grace to tell them of Christ, to open doors that you would speak as you ought, to be clear about who Christ is and what he has done. So in effect, the Lord Jesus is saying to Paul, the doors of the gospel are wide open. Swing away. Have at it. Go through those doors because nothing is going to hinder me pursuing my people. So Paul stays for 18 months teaching the word of God. And, and, and remember, Paul has been bounced from town to town to town for the last year. So him staying in Corinth for 18 months is a pretty big deal. We can be sure that this was a, a welcome change for Paul. God said the thing that Paul needed to hear to, to keep Paul where he was to do the thing that God wanted to do in Corinth through Paul. And so we see in our next set of verses that, uh, but, you know, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on, attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so, as usual... The Jews come after Paul. By God's grace, it took them, it took them a while for them to, to make all this happen. But nevertheless, they take Paul to the local judge, charging him with breaking laws. And as Paul is about to give his defense, about to defend himself, the local judge, he, he really just shuts the whole thing down, insisting that no law has been broken and that it's simply a matter of semantics. It's simply a disagreement about words. And he believes there's no substance to the charge. So he ejects the crowd from the court. So like a good mob, they find someone to beat. Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue. And you can imagine Crispus is looking on this scene like, hmm, that wasn't such a great job anyway. And so ironically, Gallio ignores a real crime taking place in his presence. What's most notable about this part of our passage is that, that all that the Lord asked of Paul and promised to do was done. Paul resisted the temptation to be fearful and went on speaking. The Lord ensured that Paul was not harmed, though once again charged. Lastly, the Lord kept his promise that he had made about the city. 
the promise that he had many in this city. And so as we look at Corinth and its history, we see that the church in Corinth grows large enough to have factions within it. It's a large enough group of people to have this group and this group and this group and this group. So it's a fairly large church that God grows up. And we see that God was faithful to bring his people to himself, even those who were very unlikely to come. Someone turn to 1 Corinthians. Look in the first chapter and the first verse. Can someone do that for me? This is the response part of the sermon. So if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, who is Corinthians, 1 Corinthians written by? Paul and who? Sosthenes. So you're telling me, well, okay, maybe Sosthenes is the, like, like the, the uh, most popular baby name from, like, you know, first century. I doubt it. This is most likely the Sosthenes that was just drug into the street and beaten by a mob of Jews because Paul it would be easy for him to, to be like, yeah, I got this beating because of Paul. But we see that Sosthenes ends up being very useful in God's kingdom, working alongside of Paul and, and writing to the Corinthians with Paul. This is, this is pretty unlikely for this to happen. It, it's also pretty unlikely that two rulers of one synagogue would come to Christ in 18 months. That's pretty unlikely. In fact, this whole account could be judged unlikely. It's pretty unlikely that Paul would find such dear friends upon entering a new city while all alone, a place that he's never been before. It's pretty unlikely that the house next door to the synagogue would become a meeting place for the church in Corinth. That's pretty unlikely. It's pretty unlikely that a judge would side with Paul, the spokesman of a new sect in Rome, rather than siding with the Jews and official Roman religion. And so all these things are pretty unlikely unless... God is at work in Corinth. It's pretty unlikely unless the Lord has people in Corinth. It's pretty unlikely that a, that a high school dropout ruffian would be teaching the Bible to you right now, but I am. And it's pretty unlikely that we're reading about an apostle who at one time killed Christians as a way of expressing his devotion to God, but we are. And it's pretty unlikely that God would put on flesh and die so that he could save the likes of you and I. But he did. All this is unlikely unless God is with us. But he is. So, let's seek out unlikely people, believing that God has people and that he is with us. God is up to some unlikely things in this passage. And if you track God, he does a lot of things you wouldn't expect him to do. And so I want to encourage you. Seek out those folks that you wouldn't expect to come after Christ. Because if God is in it, if he is with us, then we can expect him to do all sorts of unlikely things. And so will you pray with me that God would use us as an instrument in his hand 
to draw in his people into his kingdom for their good and his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, you are kind and you are good and you keep us because we can't keep ourselves. You are kind to have drawn us to yourself through your gospel by the Spirit because we couldn't have done it ourselves. And you are kind to use our simple but clear words about Christ to draw people to yourself. And so, God, we ask that you would use us, that we would get to be part of what you're doing in this town during this time. And we pray all of this in faith, knowing that you have people. And so as we uh, look at the empty seats around us, we pray in faith that you would put our friends and our family in those seats as a representation of their faith in Christ. That they would be among us, that they would come into this community by faith in Christ, through faith in Christ. And that we would call them family. Father, I'm, I'm so thankful that you did not leave me out, but you called me in. And I pray that that reality would ravage my heart to call others in and to speak clearly as I ought. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.